Hello, everyone, and welcome to episode 11 of You Press Play News. My name's Natalia. I'm the news editor. I'm Jillian. I'm the editor in chief. I'm Michael. I'm a staff writer. And this week, we'll be talking about the Board of Trustees meeting, the wavering of graduate school interest exams, the Chauvin verdict, the federal government funding mental health crisis teams, and the recent mass shootings. So on April 20th, the university's Board of Trustees met. Um, and for anyone who is not familiar, the Board of Trustees discusses and approves like policies and funding for the school. One thing that they discussed with the, was the um, statistics regarding recent graduates. And what they do is they collect the data two years post-graduation. So all this data is like, you know, within two years they achieved this. So from the 2016 to 2019 classes, the rate of graduation was 37.4%. And the new data, which is 2016 to 2020, that number is 47.5%. So that's a pretty heavy increase. Larry Fairman, the acting vice president of student affairs and enrollment management described it as the fastest improvement in the nation. The board also discussed old and new degree programs. They agreed to close the master's degree programs in teaching English as a second language and bilingual education, social foundation of education and early childhood education, citing a lack of student enrollment for these terminations. They also agreed to create doctorate degree programs in the philosophy of neuroscience and a professional doctoral degree in philosophy with a major in computer science. Ultimately, terminating and creating these programs must be approved by the Board of Governors, but most likely it will be approved and it's expected to go into effect in the fall 2021 semester. Because of the pandemic, the federal government created the CARES Act, which provided financial aid to universities in May 2020. FAU received a total of $116,470,548 from this act, some of which the government required them to spend directly to, on students providing financial aid for students. At the meeting, the board mentioned that they have already spent $8 million of that fund that was allocated specifically for them, but they also didn't really mention where that $8 million went exactly. They also discussed their master plan for both the Boca Raton and Jupiter campus, one of the goals being to significantly increase the capacity for residential students and also creating more recreational and relaxing outdoor spaces for students to utilize. Those plans will come to fruition in the next five to 10 years. So current students may not see those come into effect. One thing to note as well as we all prepare to head back to campus in person, or you know something that I thought was interesting anyways, was the lack of safety precautions at this in-person meeting that they had. The meeting took place in a boardroom on campus and on-campus rules were currently require that anyone who is not alone or um, not alone in their own private spaces or offices or vehicles must be wearing a mask and staying six feet apart. But through the duration of the meeting, a number of board and staff members removed their masks and frequently got really close to each other, certainly within six feet. At one point, they even removed their masks to stand like face to face um, right next to each other for a photo op. This re really directly contradicted school policy. At the end of the meeting, FAU President John Kelly said, we are reverting to what would look similar to fall 2019. Our belief is that it's time for students to get back together, our faculty to get back together and move on in what we will be, what we believe will be a very safe environment. Now, <laughs> fall 2019 being coupled with a safe environment to me seems like a really extreme contradiction within the context of a pandemic. And hearing him say that he wants to go back to normal is 
personally really alarming. The FAU media relations team did provide a statement to one of our editors um, just the other day that though they encourage people to get their vaccines, they will not actually be requiring faculty or students to get their vaccines at this time. Uh, yeah, this is interesting for a lot of reasons. Uh, I, I I didn't know they got that much money. That's number one, 116 million. That's a ton. But uh, that's cool with, um, I think, the um, improving the campuses and stuff. I, I mean, we're going to be gone by the time any of those improvements come, but that's cool for like future students. And um, that's a huge jump in graduation rate as well. I, I, I know that um, I think the national average is like 33% of people get a bachelor's degree. And there, if I'm looking at it right, it's just 47 and a half. So that's a pretty big jump. Um, and um, as far as like going back to normal on campus, I agree with uh, pretty much what you said, Jillian, that that's kind of out of touch with reality, at least at this point. Um, we, I don't know what, what things are gonna be like in August, clearly, but um, you know, it's, I just don't think you can go completely back to normal. And I, I'm worried that people are not going to, um, I, I'm not worried that they're not gonna do social distancing in classes. I'm worried about the kids that like live on campus, what they're going to be doing when they're not at class. Or uh, say you you share a class with like an athlete or something that travels or, or goes to other places. That's what worries me. That's what um, that's I was going to get vaccinated anyway, but that's a big reason I got vaccinated last week is because I was worried about how strict the college was going to be, and also I was worried about the other kids in the class. Um, I think it's problematic that fall 2021 will be the same as um, fall 2019 because it's just it's out of touch with the rea with reality. I think and. Um, I, I wasn't expecting them to require vaccinations just because of things that Ron DeSantis has said and just like the general like mood around the state and stuff like that. But it, it's still kind of disappointing to me. I mean, um, I, I, I'm, I'm for, you know, that you don't have to get it if you can't get it, you know, if, if, if you are allergic or something. But otherwise, I see it the same as any other vaccination that we have to have. Um, you know, uh, to go to to go to school here, they, they made us get that uh, meningitis one or ask for a, a medical waiver and that's a lot less contagious and kills a lot less people than coronavirus. So I, I don't understand why, why this wouldn't be the same. Yeah, so first off, the horror thing with the Board of Governors being people taking their masks off and not standing six feet apart, going against school policy, that really kind of worries me because it's kind of like, okay, if you're not doing it at a meeting, how are we going to expect that to happen, number one, in a classroom? And then the whole entire, you know, comparison with, oh, you know, it's going to look like similar to fall 2019. Here's the thing, fall 2019, we had no idea coronavirus was going to happen. And back then, it's like we could pack classrooms, we could do all of this stuff. Comparing that to fall 2019 basically means all of the activities, all of the classes being jam-packed, it's like, okay, you want to continue going with CDC guidelines and making sure we're all safe, but you want to smash 25 to 30 kids in a classroom. That makes yeah. no sense. To be fair, like, he didn't specify what that would even mean. Like, I think, like, the full statement was, like, something along the lines of, like, it will look a lot like fall 2019 and how we behave and how we think, but it didn't which is still like very broad and, and non-specific. So like, does that mean packing classroom with 30 people who are standing right next to each other? Or does that mean, like, what does that mean? 
yeah, like, what does that mean? Because you're just being very broad saying like fall 2019, that can be anything. I was going to say, as far as class sizes, I don't know if you guys noticed when you signed up for fall 2020, it looked like standard class sizes. They didn't look uh, small at all. There was 40 seats in some of the ones I signed up for. So I, I would wager that that it's probably going to be full size classes, like I said. And uh, one thing that's troubling, too, is you said, you know, not respecting distance, taking off the masks at a meeting. If the leaders of the school are not going to follow those guidelines, it just kind of sets a bad example. No, 100%. If the people who are running the university can't follow the guidelines that they're going to put in place, how are we going to expect them to enforce them in other areas at the school? But I am excited that they're going to add more outdoor space, <laughs> even though I won't be here to enjoy it. Um, that's something that I feel like has been really lacking on campus is like an area to just like set up a picnic or like study outside or something. Um, so I'm excited to see that happen finally. <laughs> I was going to agree with that. It's it's weird. Uh, I, I like the Boca campus, but it's like it does have like that. It's very spread out kind of. And there's like not like hubs you really see like there are at some areas, but like not really like it's it's kind of different than any other campus I've ever been to. Not necessarily in a bad way, but um, definitely anything else for like recreation areas in the future and stuff, because um, I know that they want to improve the university in any way. They already started with the residence halls and stuff. And even though we're not going to be there, it'll be cool for, you know, future people. So at the March 29th faculty setting meeting, a vote was passed on a bill that would extend the waiver of graduate college entrance exams for FAU. The graduate record examination, GRE, and graduate management admission test, GMAT, are standardized tests used to be accepted into graduate school depending on the program. This waiver for FAU started on September 14, 2020, with the set date to expire after the upcoming fall 2021 semester. After the passing of this bill, the waiver is now extended until fall 2022. At this moment, graduate admissions will go to each graduate program and ask as to whether they want to opt into the waiver or to go back to requiring the test. Prior to this, programs could waiver the test on a case-by-case -case basis, or eliminate test scores by following faculty governance procedures, whatever that may be for the program. Other universities that have done this are Florida International University, FIU, when they extended their waiver back in January of this year. Tests cost $205 for the GRE and $275 for the GMAT for those in the United States. All test costs are only for the test itself, not including any test preparation, cancellation, or rescheduling fees. For the full story on this and more information, you can go check it out on upressonline.com. So if, if I'm understanding this right, they're, they're waiving a, a test that you normally take, have to take to get into the graduate programs, correct? Yes, depending on the program, because some programs don't require it and some programs do require it. So for the programs that are um, that usually require it, they're, um, they're extending the waiver of it. Okay, all right, yeah, that's pretty cool. Uh, I feel a couple different ways about this. I'm against like standardized testing in general, pretty much. So uh, I, I'm, I'm cool with something like this being waived. And also just the cost, This the cost, you might not, that 275 bucks for the more expensive one might not seem like a lot, but you said that's just for the test itself. That's not for preparation or anything. And I, I, people don't understand that a, a lot of stuff that blocks people from going for a master's degree or from going to college in general is just cost. 
So I'm cool with like waiving that as well, just for that reason. If that means more people who wouldn't try to go to graduate school are gonna go and get accepted, then that's fine with me. You know what I mean? Because um, sometimes the only thing stopping someone is like financial things from from trying to go to graduate school or to school in general. Um, but that's how I mainly feel about it. Um, and I, I've seen this. This has followed like a pattern nationally. I think I saw something in another state where like standardized testing was like getting dropped for a lot of things, like not just graduate programs, but like other programs as well in other states. So maybe we're finally moving away from something like that, or maybe we're trying, maybe we're seeing that it, it's flawed in a way, you know? Um, so I think that's a, a cool, nice step. Maybe, maybe it's the future of what education looks like, hopefully. Yes, so this is only, we're not gonna know what fall you know, what spring 20, 2023 is gonna look like. We're not sure what they're gonna require following fall 2022. So we're not sure about that. But I do agree, like this whole entire thing with standardized testing, I never really liked it first off in the first place. I just always thought, why are we judging someone based on a test score or why are we allowing somebody into a university or a program just based on their single test score? I don't understand that. I think that's kind of flawed because you can't, you can't, how do I put this? You can't tell how someone's gonna do in a program just based on a test. That they could fail university, they could fail college courses because they don't feel at home because they're not in an environment that they like, they don't learn specific ways. It can be a whole entire different situation, not just based on the test. So um, having this extension, I think is good. Now this is only for graduate programs. I'm not sure what they're doing so far for undergrad i know for undergrad they're still requiring it yeah i'm pretty sure you still have to have like your sat and your acts and that kind of stuff so i'm a transfer student do you do you need to if you're a freshman going into fau take a an sat to get in yes you okay. need yeah. sat or act mm -hmm. okay all right yeah I, the only the only test i took was the uh the pert uh when i was at broward college and then i was real happy when i transferred uh after my sophomore year because I was like oh I don't have to take any tests or nothing because it's like why would I already have my degree like I'm clearly like college material if I have the associates but um yeah I, I've only really taken the pert I wasn't sure if they required it if you were freshmen yeah I mean that's the whole thing with like these college entrance exams is like like you said like they don't really test like how smart you are I guess it's all about first of all do you have the money to buy these study materials and do have the ability to invest time and even then like I don't think it really demonstrates a person's ability to excel in an academic area. Yeah I also agree with that because like anything can be you can look at how somebody is going to do in various different ways you can look at their GPA you can look at oh okay is this person kind of all around do they do extracurricular activities do they do you know something outside of school? Because you can look at a student that has the most perfect test scores, they have the most perfect grades, but they don't do anything besides studying. It's kind of like, what can you show besides that versus someone that's like, okay, they have kind of average to good grades, but like, you know, they do a bunch of other stuff outside of school. So like, you know, what shows, what shows a person's more ready? You know, a person can balance activities and school or a person who just stays and studies. Yeah, so 
And of course, they're not waving it, I guess, because they don't believe in standardized tests. They're waving it because of a pandemic. But I feel like, you know, that's still a good thing. And I'm, I'm glad that they're taking a break from that for a minute. Our next topic is the uh, Derek Chauvin verdict. I'm sure pretty much everyone followed this in some uh, shape or form. But Chauvin was found guilty of all three counts, second degree murder, third degree murder, and second degree manslaughter for killing George Floyd last May. Uh, the jury deliberated for only 10 hours. That's a pretty short time in a big trial like this. Uh, we learned yesterday, uh, we're, we're recording this on a Sunday, so we learned on Saturday the 24th that the judge, Peter Cahill, will sentence Chauvin on June 16th, so that's about two months from now. Um, Chauvin will face up to a maximum of 75 years in prison. Uh, I was kind of surprised by this verdict in a way, just because um, it's, and I wrote an article about this that'll be out by the time this gets aired, but it's pretty rare for cops to get in trouble. They have like a, a, a broad uh, authority to use force when they see fit, basically. And it's really rare to see a cop go down on murder charges. Um, and I think the video and just how uh, flagrant his conduct was really led to that, you know what I mean? Um, but hopefully it's a step in the right direction. They've already announced um, that they're gonna, the Department of Justice is gonna investigate the Minneapolis Police Department and uh, see if there's a, a, you know, a culture there that's enabling stuff like this. But uh, I found this out last night and it's pretty interesting is that um, ABC News leaked that Chauvin had been involved in a similar incident to the George Floyd incident in 2017. And in this incident, Chauvin assaulted a black teen with his flashlight, the kid required stitches. And then when he took him to the ground, he kneeled on the teen for 17 minutes while the kid screamed that he couldn't breathe. So uh, until an ambulance came and took him away. This was not allowed to be brought up at trial. The prosecution wanted to bring this up at trial, but the Department of Justice might charge him on this eventually. So uh, I think this establishes a pattern of behavior. I know that the defense in Chauvin's case was trying to paint him as a reasonable officer who was scared and all kinds of stuff like that. But this, this second thing that broke last night than when I read it, it, I think it shows a clear pattern of aggressive behavior from Chauvin, uh, maybe biased towards black people as well. Um, but um, this wasn't allowed to be brought up at trial, which is strange because they were because it was in Chauvin's past, but the defense was allowed to bring up George Floyd's past, which was just weird to me. But, um, but I don't know, what did you guys think of the trial? I mean, um, I don't know, did you guys think justice was served? I know we probably still have a long way to go with all this stuff. Um, and, and what do you think of these new allegations? I, I left a link to the ABC News thing if you guys wanna read it later. Yeah, so we were actually, me and Jenny, we were in editor's meeting when, um, while we were waiting for the verdict to come out. And I was like checking out like, okay, when's the verdict gonna come out? When's the verdict gonna come out? I was waiting, I was like, I wanna know, is he guilty or not? Um, I just think, I think in this case, justice was served, but not, it's not the end. It doesn't end here. It's like, yes, we got this done. Now, what do we do from now on here? Are we gonna continue keeping cops accountable for the situation that they did? Are we gonna continue, you know, uh, putting, you know, putting, uh, making police accountable for their actions? Is this just gonna be like a one dead situation or are we gonna continue, you know, bringing cops to justice? Yeah, and speaking of your article, which by the time that our listeners are hearing this will already be up on our website, it, I don't think this is justice. I mean, sure, like we're getting the guy, but 
it's basic accountability. Um, he murdered someone. This is exactly how the justice system is supposed to work. And the only reason this is such a big deal is because it doesn't usually work like how it's supposed to. And we need to see more of this. And uh, someone brought up a really good point. Um, so we did a survey on the UP's Instagram story and we ended up asking people, oh, what do you think of the trial and what do you think of the results? And most of the responses were like, great, this is exactly how it should have gone. Um, but someone did bring up a good point. And I've seen it elsewhere as well, that like the possibility of him getting a retrial because of all the things that happened during the trial where there were senators who uh, you know, were basically saying that the jury needs to find him guilty. Um, and so, yeah, just like a lot of higher up politicians talking about it and quote unquote, like maybe tainting the, the jury in that way. Hopefully that doesn't happen. Um, but <laughs> I'm always concerned about what will come next. Yeah, with, with this specific case too, um, maybe this will be, you know, a step forward for stuff like this. But I, I do think, and, and Joe Biden mentioned this, that it look at the factors it took for him to get convicted. I, 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 without the video, you know what I mean? It's, it's his word against a dead man. And he probably could have and probably would have if we look at the history of stuff like this, gotten away with it. You know what I mean? Um, but I, I really think that this was important because it, it, it woke people up a little bit um, to, to some of this stuff. Um, not that people weren't already, but I think it, it, it maybe brought it to light to more people that maybe didn't care about police violence or maybe didn't realize, you know, um, that, that these abuses go on. So um, we'll see if that's a step in the right direction. I, I definitely think the investigation of the Minneapolis Police Department is a step in the right direction. Um, honestly, I, I'd be for those kind of investigations all around the US because if you have nothing to hide, you have nothing to hide. You know what I mean? Um, so yeah, we'll, we'll have to see how this goes. Um, I'm curious to see in a couple months how he, how they sentence him. And I don't know if we'll be doing the podcast in the summer, but yeah, if we are, I'm sure we'll talk about it. This this was pretty unique, and I, I wrote about this as well, is that uh, Chauvin's superiors and his peers testified against him, not just in his own department, but from around the country. And that's very unusual. Uh, they, they call it the blue wall of silence, where police officers don't usually testify against other police officers, even when there's misconduct, stuff like that. So um, this was unique in that way, in that over and over again, his peers and his superiors were willing to say, like, this is not the kind of conduct that a police officer, police officers should not conduct himself this way. This is excessive force, stuff like that. I, I don't think I've ever heard any cop really get, go on the stand and go against another fellow officer like that. So, and, you know, if we're going to hold police accountable, I think that needs to happen more often. You know, your peers need to speak up and things like that. I mean, if you're going to root out bad apples from system then that's that's what needs to happen that's basic accountability yeah you bring up a great point and i probably talked about this in previous episode as well but when it comes to this like blue wall of silence that we did not see take place here at the trial where we saw his colleagues and superiors come and testify against him i guess like when i hear it and like i don't know their inten intentions they haven't talked about their intentions i can't get inside their head but when i see this i guess my interpretation is that you know they're doing it so that they can avoid taking accountability in other areas like if they can say hey united states we got this chauvin guy he's he's in prison we got him you don't have to worry about us anymore i think that 
is what is going to relax public attention on the issue. People are going to say, oh, okay, we don't have to worry about this anymore. We can move on with our lives. We just don't have to keep paying attention. Um, so I, I guess like that's what I feel like the goal was, why I feel like all these people stepped up to actually testify for once, is avoiding further media attention and avoiding further public attention and public unrest. They wanted to just kind of wash their hands of the incident and move on with their lives. That, that's a good point as well. Um, I've, I thought that myself, Jillian. I thought that maybe they were using him as a sacrificial lamb to say, here's, you, you know what I mean, in a way, uh, just echoing exactly what you said, like, you know, oh, you got the guy, don't don't worry about us anymore. But uh, I'm, I'm glad the Department of Justice is investigating and stuff. And, and we'll see if these other charges against him from him uh, hitting that teenager if they stick. Um, but like I said, I mean, I'd, I'd like to hear from that teenager in that incident. I mean, he got kneeled on for eight minutes longer than than George Floyd, and and he easily could have been dead as well. But it it shows a um, a pattern of behavior, I think, from Chauvin. So I believe he he belongs in prison. I believe the the, the verdict was just in this case. I mean, we all saw what happened, but I mean, he he might have killed another person if he was allowed to still keep his job. Who knows if this is really a pattern of behavior for him? Yeah, so I actually remember what I was going to talk about. So I saw an article, and it was basically how, in the video, Chauvin's eyes, like, did you notice how his eyes weren't a sign of hatred? It was, like, even more than hatred. It was, like, wanting, it was, I don't even know how to describe it, because it's, it's beyond hatred. Yeah. And, and like we were saying, Michael, like when we talk about or when people talk about, you know, you know, whether it's just a few bad apples or the whole bundle is rotten and you hear things. Um, well, Chauvin kneeled on this other kid's neck for almost twice as long and he he was still back at work. He was still doing his job. He was still in his uniform. And it was only until it was caught on camera that, you know, he faced any repercussions for that. I'm assuming that his department knew that he did this to a child before. Um, so that brings me back to the whole point of, sure, maybe it's only a couple of bad cops, but are people within the system reporting those bad cops or doing anything about them? And B, obviously this has happened before, it's just that the kid didn't die, thankfully, but no one took action until they felt like they had to, until they felt like they had to get the media attention off their back. Yeah, and, and what's interesting about the details of this other 2017 case, uh, I'll, I'll go over it quickly, um, but he he was called to a house for a domestic dispute. Uh, a mother called, called the police on her son, and another officer witnessed Chauvin doing this to this teen, and according to the ABC News article, the mother was pleading for, with Chauvin to get off of the kid, uh, her own son. She said, you're going to kill my son, I think, at one point, and uh, so this other officer witnessed this and didn't think it was strange or uh, abusive or br brutal. And also uh, it noted in the article that Chauvin's incident report that he wrote after this varied pretty greatly from what was on the body cam footage. So like you're saying, it's, it's more than just one bad apple. It's, it's quite a few people looking the other way, if not encouraging it, honestly. So next on the topic kind of of police as well, 
Uh, there have been so many instances where we have seen police officers harm or kill those who are mentally ill or experiencing a mental health crisis. Oftentimes these victims or their loved ones call the police to help in a crisis situation and someone ends up dead as a result. So next on the topic of police again, um, there have been so many instances where police have harmed or killed those who are mentally ill or experiencing a mental health crisis. Oftentimes these victims or their loved ones call the police because they need help in their crisis situation and someone ends up dead. According to the Associated Press, the federal government is helping fund new crisis teams dedicated to mental health situations. They would be mobile teams made up of mental health practitioners who are actually trained in de-escalating potentially volatile situations. They reported that about 1,000 people are killed by police every year and that mental illness is a factor in about 25% of those instances. According to the Associated Press, quote, President Joe Biden's recent coronavirus relief bill calls for an estimated $1 billion over a 10-year um, period for states that set up mobile crisis teams, currently locally operated in a handful of places. So these mobile crisis teams, they take a lot of work off of police. One place or one team that has already been in practice is in an area south of Portland, Oregon. The program is called CAHOOTS or Crisis Assistance Helping Out on the Streets, and it's run by the White Bird Clinic. While they are connected to the 911 emergency response teams, they actually act independently of the police. Members of the organization noted to the AP how even just the fact that they don't look like police officers helps to de-escalate or not further escalate the situation. Instead of wearing formal uniforms, they just wear like a, a t-shirt or um, a jacket with their logo on it. So it's much more casual. They also stated that they handled over 24,000 calls in the local area in 2019, which takes a major load off of police. The AP also reported how many of these cases involve someone who is homeless as well. The Oregon Democratic uh, Senator Ron Wyden, who chairs the Finance Committee, which oversees Medicaid, says that too often law enforcement is asked to respond to situations that they are not trained to handle, Wyden said. On the streets in challenging times, too often the result is violence or even fatal violence, particularly for black Americans. So personally, I think this is a really good step. Um, it's a small step, but it's a step nonetheless in creating change in the policing system and preventing, you know, injuries like that are not necessary. What do you guys think? I think this is about time. I've been hearing about this, people wanting to do this, calling for this for quite a while now. Um, I, I, I think that trained mental health professionals should respond, and, and I don't mean this as disrespect to the police, should respond to people who are having a mental health crisis. I don't think someone should call the police on their brother who's having an episode or is mentally ill and that person ends up dead because that's not what the person calling the police is calling the police for. They're calling the police for help. Um, so I, I think it's better. And, and like you said, this makes the police's job easier, which is good. You know, I mean, maybe this you know, makes them less stressed out or whatever, you know, takes a load off of them, takes, a, a, like you said, 24,000 calls. That's a lot of calls. Um, I would actually even be for expanding something like this into other areas, such as like traffic cops. Like maybe you have a certain branch of the police or a certain team that just gives out traffic tickets that doesn't carry guns or anything like that. Because I think a lot of times we see people get killed at traffic stops too over innocuous things. Dante Wright, just a little bit ago, that just happened. So whatever you can do, you know what I mean, to get better trained individuals to help people that are having a mental health crisis or, um, you know what I mean, uh, the police have a hard job, we know that, uh, we, we know they have a huge load on themselves, and I just don't think 
that being a police officer necessarily trains you. I, it doesn't train you to deal with someone who may be really mentally ill or having a, a big problem, maybe suicidal. I, I don't know. Um, but I, I do think it's better to have trained mental health professionals respond to these types of things. It could lead to unne more, less unnecessary uh, deaths or shootings from police violence. You said 1,000 people dead a year, 25% have mental health, some type of mental health problem. So that's 250 people a year that maybe would have survived. Who knows? You know, it's hard to say without seeing the details of every single case. But um, I think it's a step in the right direction. But we'll have to see how many states commit to it. And, and what happens with it, it's, we won't know for a while. Yeah, and you bring up a really great point about, you know, implementing this in other areas as well. And I think this really reflects on, you know, the popular slogan, defund the police, it's quite a controversial one. But from the people that I've talked to who support that, it's not so much about like not having like any authority or type of law enforcement or anything, it's about creating special teams like this who have specialized areas that they can focus on as opposed to having you know one one law enforcement entity that has to handle everything um it's about breaking it up into smaller sections into more feasible sections you can't possibly train one officer in it, how to effectively handle every possible situation it, it's just not feasible um so doing something like this I think is a really great demonstration of how quote unquote defund the police can work without creating a deficit of aid in the community, if that makes sense. Yeah, and I feel like I've even seen statements from police officers who feel like there's a lot of pressure on them to be able to handle an assortment of situations and they feel overwhelmed by the need to do that as well. So I feel like something like this really just helps and benefits everyone involved. Yeah, for sure. And 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 I think um, people get caught up with the defund the policing when it's really more of a reallocate the funds type of deal rather than a defund. So it's kind of unfortunately named. But um, and, and you bring up a good point with officers saying like that they might not feel, you know, that some of them are for this, that they might not feel um, comfortable in every situation because they may not get trained for it. We've all seen statistics that police officers don't get as much training maybe as they should in general. So um you know, are we to expect them to understand how to respond to someone who has a mental illness that they know nothing about? You know what I mean? Um, so I, I think this is a good thing. And and um, I don't think it should be really controversial because you said like reallocating like special people to do certain things. This is something the police already kind of do with SWAT teams and things like that undercover. Those are already different, you know, parts of the pie of like a police department. So this can just be, you know, an addition to that. I really don't think it should be controversial. I really think it would help make police officers' jobs easier, lead to less unnecessary death uh, or arrests for people. Um, I think it's a good idea, but like I said, we'll just have to see how, if it, if how it's implemented and how many states decide to do it. It's cool that Oregon's doing it and showing that it really is making a difference. You know what I mean? Like I think the police responding to like homeless people and arresting them is like a waste of of their resources and time you know what I mean it's you know get, get that person some help rather than arrest them basically yeah and, and I know that the team that I talked about that is just in the, 
just around like the Portland area. I know that they're not federally funded at this point. Uh, the article wasn't particularly clear. It's from the Associated Press, like I said. Um, so I can't tell like where the funding is coming from, if it's the state or if it's donations. But I think, like you said, it's a great example of how you can reallocate those funds. Yeah, and also with the help if this does become kind of like a nationwide or if they decide to bring this to other cities, it will also kind of, because here's the thing, when the police respond, they don't know whether someone someone has like a mental illness or not. They can't just look at it and be like, okay, this person has a mental illness. They don't know that without knowing or talking to the person. And I kind of want to bring up this case here. I saw a video of police responding to a woman. So she was demonstrating some type of mental she was having like a some type of mental health issue and the police responded with aggression to her and this was an elderly woman and they were tackling her to the ground and i'm thinking what would have happened if there was like a mental health team they would have responded to this completely different Yeah, which reminds me of another video I saw where this poor woman, I think she was in like either a dorm or an apartment complex, I can't remember which, but she was an exp she was experiencing a mental health crisis. Uh, the police were called to try to help her and the video shows her being dragged by her hair basically outside of the building, throughout the building. Um, I know that went viral at one point, I don't know if either of you saw that one, but that one is extremely hard to watch as well. Um, especially like when you take into consideration that this is a girl who who needed help and in a moment where she desperately needed help she's being traumatized and mishandled it it's so sad to see yeah and and i think it's a shame that people like i said they get caught up in the defund the police part of it like i said it's kind of an unfortunately named slogan because um I don't think anyone, not any one of us, I don't think we, any of us would say that we don't need police officers. I, I don't believe that at all. Uh, but we're saying that maybe we can take some pressure off these guys. Maybe we can reallocate these funds. You know, maybe we can do better. Shouldn't we try to do better? You know, maybe some of this money could be used to better train them. Maybe it could be used to, you know, fund these mental health teams or something like that. Or maybe it changes up the structure of a police department where, you know, certain people write traffic tickets and they don't carry weapons or they respond to certain calls. Um, you know, it's, it, it's, it's defund the police is what people say, but what they really mean is reallocate the money. Um, you know, spend the money differently. Maybe we should try something else because some of this stuff clearly isn't working. So uh, I, I think it's a shame that that gets hijacked by that, that phrase just because there is, I think there's a lot of good faith argument from people saying like, we could spend money better this way or that way. And um, like you said, some cops would probably be all for it. You know what I mean? I'm, I'm sure if we went and tried to talk to some police officers and said, how would you feel if there was a team to, you know, respond to mental health situations? I, I would think most of them, you know, would probably be like, yeah, that's, that's fine with us. You know, I mean, takes a load off of us. So. So back in March, we discussed both the Atlanta and Boulder shootings and deaths. Sadly, the amount of mass shootings that have occurred in the United States since then has only gotten worse. On April 8th, one person was killed and five others were wounded during a workplace shooting at a manufacturing facility in Cantmore Cabinet in Bryan, Texas. A week later, on April 15, eight, eight people were killed after a gunman opened fire at a FedEx facility in Indianapolis, Illinois. 
On April 17, a gunman opened fire into a West Rhodes Mall in Omaha, Nebraska. Although it wasn't categorized as a mass shooting or an active shooting situation, the mall still treated it as such. And just last Sunday, during our recording actually, on April 18, three people were killed in Austin, Texas in another shooting. All of this is according to various NBC News and CNN articles. And according to CNN and Gun Violence Archive, the United States has seen at least 50 mass, 50 mass shootings since the one in Atlanta. So I kind of want to know what do you guys think about this? I think it is complete tragedy that we are seeing this amount of mass shootings and it kind of feels like it's been happening back to back to back without pause. Yeah, the biggest thing with this that I think is when someone brings up a mass shooting, you have to ask which one. Um, that's kind of insane to me. And I say this as someone, like I said, uh, this shouldn't be controversial that we need massive changes to our gun laws. And I say this as a guy that like, you, you know, Natalia and Jillian know this, I, I like to go to the shooting range. I've shot guns, you know, uh, responsibly. But like, we need some type of change with this. Absolutely. This, I don't understand how many times this needs to happen. The only time, the only year we didn't have all these mass shootings was last year. And that's because we were all shuttered in because of the pandemic. So as soon as things start getting back to normal, this stuff is starting up again. And it's not going to be the last one. I, there, there's probably, as sad as it is, there's probably going to be another one before we do our next recording next Sunday. You know what I mean? I mean, there might be one today at some point. So I don't know when enough is enough for people to come and make common sense gun law changes because we see how easy a lot of these shooters are getting hold of their weapons. Um, a lot of them are getting them legally. Um, but some of them, I, I think it was the, uh, the Indianapolis shooter, he was flagged, wasn't he, last year, uh, I, I believe by the FBI. And um, I think they noted that he, he may have had some type of extremist white supremacist material on his computer or something and, and, and what, what nothing ever came of that you don't keep an eye on this guy you know how does he get a gun um i don't know it's just it just seems broken you also bring up the point michael like we have to ask which mass shooting every time we talk about mass shootings we have to ask like which one because there's been so many and that was even asked in one of my classes i know i talked about last week we have to ask which one and even fauci even says like this isn't just this is a public health crisis at this moment because we're having these mass shootings almost back to back now. Like it's, we drop our phone, next thing we know, there's another one. You know what's crazy too is that we're not the only country that allows people to have handguns. And, but we're the only country where this happens over and over and over and over again. And I've, you know, I've seen, I've seen people like Ted Cruz and other politicians say every time there's a mass shooting, someone wants to restrict gun gun rights and it's like yeah i mean that's what some someone sensible would do when there's a mass shooting every week ted you know i mean <laughs> seriously uh it, it's just crazy they they go up and they say there's nothing we could have done when it's like then why is this the only country where this happens over and over again and you could you know uh I think gun laws have a lot to do with it because we have laxer gun laws than a lot of other nations i mean it's just a fact you know, like I said, it's, and I'm not against guns. I, like I said, I go to the range. I, I enjoy them responsibly, but like, if, if I, I am absolutely for some type of legislation, if it, if it even infringes on 
on me, you know what I mean? Uh, because then it saves lives, you know what I mean? If you're a responsible gun owner, you shouldn't be against any type of gun legislation because it's not going to affect you. Mm -hmm. And also, like, the Second Amendment says, like, you have the right to bear arms. You have the right to bear arms, and I know Jillian said this in the other episodes, you have the right to bear arms to a well-regulated militia. That doesn't mean they can have any type of, just go out and have any type of guns. It means they're well-regulated. Yeah. <laughs> it, it, like you said, Michael, like, Plenty of other first world countries allow citizens to have guns. And the question has, at least in my mind, never been about banning them completely. It's about regulating it and making sure that, you know, people can protect themselves and enjoy these things, but while keeping people safe. And I remember, like, I mean, literally we had, like you said, Natalia, shooting on April 17th and then the next, another one on, on the 18th. It, it, it's happening like every day. And I don't know how you can see that and not feel overwhelmed and not feel incredibly disheartened and scared. I mean, God forbid I go to the grocery store today and I don't come back home. You know what I mean? That's a terrifying thing to think about. And it, it's terrifying because that's literally what is happening to people. Um, you go to work, the FedEx facility, you go to work and you don't come home because of these of the lack of gun laws and the lack of regulation. And, you know, I hear so many times this argument of, well, you know, people, people get guns uh, illegally anyways, you know, you can't stop people from getting them illegally. Sure. But there are a number of these gunmen who do get them legally. And like you said, Michael are flagged beforehand or have other other conditions that should have been flagged or should have prevented them from getting this gun and is there a guarantee that they wouldn't have found a way around it no there's not a guarantee but i'm sure it would have really helped and it would have made you know their ability to commit such a, an atrocity much harder yeah and 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 if you look at this one thing you notice is that a lot of these people have been flagged, if not by a government agency, but by a family member or something like that. Um, I think the only like mass shooting I saw in the last like five or six years where the gunman literally came up super clean with everything was the one in Las Vegas because it seemed like he kind of did that out of nowhere and they still don't know why he did that. So yeah, you know, sometimes on a rare occasion, there might be something you, you cannot do. But I think the reason that, these always happen is that we we don't have common sense gun laws and we also are very poor at, at addressing mental health in our country and when those two things meet you have the potential for you know really bad things to happen so uh it, it you know it i know that people say like to say oh you need to talk about mental health before guns i think they're they're both linked they both need addressed you know what i mean so um I don't know, common sense gun laws is, is all I can say, you know, make sure that, I, I don't understand specifically with the Indianapolis guy, why he, you know, after they looked at him, I'd have to go research and I don't want to say anything where I look stupid, but, um, you know, what, what, what came of that, honestly. And then I remember Nicholas Cruz with the Parkland thing. I, I remember that he had been checked out by authorities, if I'm remembering correctly. Um, and if you go back to 20, 30 years ago with uh, Columbine was in 98 and they were both checked out by um, mental health professionals before they, they shot up their school. So, you know, 
this has been going on forever at this point. So like I said, it, it, we're probably going to see another one before we record again. As sad as that is to say. So we have come to the end of another episode of You Press Play News. My name's Natalia, and we'll see you back here next time. Mm-hmm.